Our call to worship this morning is Psalm 25, 6 through 8, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. Remember, Lord, your, your great mercy and love, from they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. For you, Lord, are good. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. Our scripture reading comes to us from the Old Testament this morning from the, the book of Lamentation. It's found in our pew Bible, and page 762. Lamentation 5, 8, um, 15 through 17 says, The joy of our heart is ceased. Our dance is turned into mourning. The crown is fallen from our head. Woe unto us that we have sinned. For this our heart is faint. For these things our eyes are dim. Today our New Testament reading will be from 1 John chapter 1, 8 through 10 on page 1,129 in your pew Bibles. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. would like for you to open, uh, take out your, your pew uh, bulletin, actually, and take a look at the photographs there. We're at the end of February, which is Black History Month, and uh, I thought it would just be worthwhile to spend a minute uh, contemplating that and taking maybe a lesson or two from that with us into the rest of the sermon time here. Perhaps the large photo, oh, by the way, if you have not seen Travis Johnson, who's working on photography uh, with the group today, and you might want to get your picture taken, Travis, wave at everybody. Would you stand? Please stand, Travis. This is our new office assistant, Travis Johnson. (laughs) Travis claims not to be particularly creative, but when I told him I wanted a collage of... uh, people from uh, civil rights and, and, and other movements, um, he learned a program and figured out how to uh, layer these photos and put them on the bulletin. So uh, creative or no, he's certainly resourceful, inventive, and a computer genius, uh, which I am not. So I'm very happy about that. Yes. At the top there is somebody you should all know. This century, who is this figure? Yes, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., very good. And uh, he lived roughly, well, exactly, 1929, the big crash, to 1968 when he was assassinated. Um, 
took his cues, interestingly enough, from Gandhi. I spent time there with him. Uh, took his cues from the, the pacifist way of protest. He was a Baptist and a preacher and became the seminal figure of the civil rights uh, movement in this century. Next to him is somebody you should all know also. Oh, good. It's a relief that fifth grade history has uh, sunk in somewhere. Um, Abraham Lincoln was soundly criticized by some during of his contemporaries as having no particular love of the Negro and of not joining the anti-slavery movement soon enough. He was perceived as a latecomer to that. But he did indeed uh, make his stand and was, uh, got the nomination from the Republican Party and ran for president on an, anti, uh, an abolitionist uh, platform. And in 1863 signed the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing the slaves in the states, from which then followed secession of several states and the Civil War, which uh, was a very difficult chapter in American history. But... Uh, uh, God was with the cause of right, I do believe. Also brought about the 15th, uh, 13th Amendment, abol abolishing slavery in this country forever. Anybody know who's next to Abraham Lincoln? Very good. Frederick Douglass, who was a contemporary of Abraham Lincoln's, uh, a slave who ran away and made his way to the north to the free states, he uh, was an orator, a writer, a statesman. Um, his freedom was actually purchased by the British. He spent some time in England and Ireland uh, speaking uh, his abolitionist lectures, and they were so taken with him and his intellect that they took up offerings and assembled the, the cash to pay off his, his owner and truly make him a free man. He was an advocate of women's suffrage, although ended up estranged from that movement at the end of his life. And uh, tremendous intellect, a tremendous statesman, a tremendous force for good in the freedom that needed to be rendered. And so next to Frederick Douglass, does anybody know who that is? Oh, you're good. Sojourner Truth, indeed. But she wasn't born that. That's a taken name as you might have imagined. I didn't think of it that way, but sojourner implies somebody on a journey, and truth implies a destination, doesn't it? Her born name was Isabella Bomfrey. Uh, she was interested in uh, obtaining land grants in the 1870s for freed slaves. She did not achieve that goal, but she was an outspoken advocate of abolition, of women's rights, uh, of prison reform, and she campaigned in Michigan against capital punishment, which makes her a very, very interesting figure indeed. There is some evidence that at the very end of her life she became a Seventh-day Adventist, and she's most famous for a speech she wrote called Ain't I a Woman? And actually she didn't write it, it was an extemporaneous speech that she gave uh, that was very powerful, moving a number of people. 
These were all people who chose to make a difference, not just out of faith and conviction, but to address a particular sin of a particular nation, a sin that we shared with some other nations, a sin of believing that it was acceptable for one human being to subjugate another, to own another, to rule the right and destiny of another. One of these four characters said this. Let's see if you can guess who. Right is of no sex. Truth is of no color. God is the father of us all. And we are all brethren. Who said that? Martin Luther King, I hear. Anybody else? Abraham Lincoln. Really, it probably could have been any one of three. But it happens to have been the statesman, Frederick. Douglas, who was actually Frederick Bailey, he too took another name, as many freed slaves ended up doing. Chapter in our history, both to uh, celebrate and to uh, be glad is behind us and uh, to remember that the freedom of human beings is worth fighting and dying for, and that is what Jesus did for all of us. He died to purchase your freedom, to set you free from slavery, to pay the bondsman, to pay the ransom. And so we are free as long as we've made that choice uh, to be Christ's. Well, forgive me if I'm just a tad groggy today. I'm a bit hungover from a muscle relaxant I took last night. Uh, <laughs> It's one of those shower injuries where you get out of the shower and you're drying off and you reach down to dry your legs and crack, your back pops, and you, you, you have instant pain and realize that you have just done something to yourself you had no idea was possible to do. And uh, we'll see how quickly I can get this sorted out. Um, had an interesting experience at, at Cantori rehearsal this last Tuesday. We were rehearsing upstairs because there was a party going on downstairs, a sort of miniature Mardi Gras, minus, I think, the shenanigans and the immorality, uh, the risque portions of that, although they had the, uh, uh, the beads, so I, I, I can't vouch for, for all of that. I can only suppose that the rector had things under order there. They were celebrating Shrove Tuesday. Now... I have to tell you that this is all foreign language to me, and it's probably foreign language to most of you, but Shrove Tuesday, kind of a Mardi Gras type thing, is the day before Ash Wednesday, which for many Christians is the day Lent begins. Shrove Tuesday uh, is the celebration. It's also known in some parts of the world as Pancake Tuesday, which is really interesting to me because International House of Pancakes has declared today the International Day of Pancakes. I don't know how many of you abided by that and had pancakes this morning. I frankly uh, don't have time, particularly when I am uh, recovering from a muscle relaxant, um, to, to get pancakes on the table. So uh, if you feel like it, um, IHOP is open till midnight and you can honor International Pancake Day. I don't know why they chose to do that on something other than Shrove Tuesday. Maybe they reckon Lent differently. Maybe it's not connected, but what are the chances? It's a 1 in 52 chance, I, I'm thinking. 
Well, Ash Wednesday, as many of you do know, is when olive oil is combined with the ashes of the palm fronds that have been burnt from the previous Palm Sunday and applied to the foreheads of believers as a throwback to Old Testament times when people tore their clothing and placed ashes upon themselves and sackcloth upon themselves as a sign of humility and repentance for sin committed. It was, you've read of that certainly, haven't you? Of people tearing their clothes and putting on sackcloth and ashes. Uh, The idea is total humiliation uh, visible humiliation before God and before others as a, a sen- awareness piece of sin and sin's consequences. And so uh, I, I've, I've been struggling to figure out how 40 days and 40 nights are related, that's supposed to be the period of Lent, to Ash Wednesday to Easter when that's a, a lot longer than 40 days. So I did a little research and found out that while the 40 days and 40 nights of Lent was based upon Christ's exit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, um, Sunday, as we all know, was uh, converted to the day of worship by the apostles in recognition of the resurrection. Excuse me. Sunday is a day of feasting and therefore can't be part of Lent. And so the six Sundays of Lent leading up to Easter don't count. Hence, it's a long haul to Easter. Well, why do I bring all of this up? First of all, I think we, we, we do need to know what's happening in the larger uh, world of Christendom. I think that's appropriate. And I think there's something about the Lenten season apart from giving up something, you know, uh, whatever your thing is, you give up chocolate or butter or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, uh, what, uh, aside from those kinds of things that we don't generally think of as a community and participate in, I think it's a season worth observing in terms of mindfulness. Huh? can read a little bit more about that in my letter. But mindfulness concerning. Now, we've been doing a series, or I've been doing a series on useful prepositions, and concerning is a preposition. And I suppose this is as good a time as, as any to explain that, yes, once again, uh, my tongue has said something that isn't quite what my brain was thinking. There are not 350 prepositions. There are 150, and the book I referenced is for 150 prepositions. And no wonder I couldn't think of 350. I can come a lot closer to thinking of 150, but concerning is a preposition. And we need to be mindful concerning this season because we cannot get to resurrection without crucifixion. And we cannot get to crucifixion without an understanding of why that had to take place. And we don't need an incarnation if our fellowship with God had continued face to face. We don't need an incarnation to show us the Father if our communion from Eden had continued unbroken. 
And it's a long time to kind of hold our collective feet to the fire, as it were. But I think it's worth doing this season. To take ourselves post the celebrations of Christmas and Christmas tide and Epiphany and to remember that something's coming up which is eminently celebratable, if that's, that's not a word, but we're celebrating for the Christian, but that we don't get there without sin and suffering and an understanding of, of what that entails. I don't need to probably spend a great deal of time this morning with you exegeting this for you. I want to talk just a little bit about mindfulness and point us to a few scriptures and just kind of bring us to that place, that quiet place where what we may give up in the next weeks and months might be some sense of the scattered busyness. I was, I, I don't, don't want to talk out of turn, but in Sabbath school we have a, a, a class and one of our members shared that this particular member has chosen to forego news coverage and is celebrating the goodness that the absence of bad news has brought into his life. I think that's really interesting. So maybe you could pick something in this season that's distracted you or eaten up a little more of your time than you would like and forego it for a time and give yourself to some mindfulness, some meditation, some awareness. I want to preface what we're going to read with the following. I do not believe in the oh, what a worm am I theology. I love the song Amazing Grace, that phrase that saved a wretch like me is sometimes a bit much. I realize that there are human wretches, true wrecks of human beings. But I do also recognize that there are some pretty wonderful human beings that I run into. This isn't to say that they're perfect. This is not to say that they're sin-free. This is not to say that there isn't selfishness, greed, lasciviousness, lust, and other things inside of them. This is simply to say that on a human level, when I run into people, I experience some people who are pretty far gone. It's pretty difficult to see the vestiges of God's image created in them. And I run into others for whom it seems much easier to identify that image. Do you have that same experience? Praise the Lord. I am willing to stand alone, but I don't like to. So this phrase, what a wretch am I, oh, what a worm am I theology, comes from the idea that somehow we're truly worth nothing because of what has happened in the context of sin. And that's simply the worst theology that you can possibly adopt. Number one, it doesn't do any justice to the vestiges of the image of God that remains in us. Number two, it does not speak to the human capacity as a result of that vestige of image left for love. And love is always of God. This is, on this point, the scripture is clear. 
Love is of God. It can come from no one else. It is the gift of no one else. When human beings express love, whether it's a mother for a child, whether it's somebody caring for a sick person, when it's rescuing a dog who needs rescuing or spending 48 hours working nonstop to pull something out of a well that's fallen into it, that is human love, the vestige of God, the image of God. it's, It's love. The source of it is love. That is of God. And there's just... No wretchedness about that. That's noble and worthy. So I, 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 I want to be clear that um, when God says, I, I want to redeem this people, he is also adding or seeing value, you see. He, he saved us from a state in which we couldn't save ourselves and couldn't help ourselves. He purchased our salvation with his blood. He loved us with an everlasting love. But even in our lostness, we were not of no value. Because we were valuable to the one who made us even when we had sinned. He longed for a relationship with you and with me even when we had sinned and that face-to-face time was no longer possible. He reached out over and over and over again in multiple ways through multiple centuries to demonstrate his love for the race, to give us a glimpse of his reality and his grace, to instill within us as a people a sense of value and hope and to teach us the way of living in love that we might not come to harm ourselves or harm others so with that uh, in your, I, I welcome discussion on this I, I welcome your opinion on this not this exact moment but let's do talk if, if you take serious exception to what I've just shared I understand sin to have separated me from God And without his initiative, I would truly be lost. But I don't understand sin to have fully canceled the divine image in myself or others or to have negated my worth to God or God would not have taken the initiative to save me. Thank you. you. So it's in that context that we're going to take a look mindful of the ways our state of sin and chosen sins have impacted our capacity to receive from the God we say we love and to give to the God we say we love. And so we go to the psalm that was read for us just a few minutes ago in our call to worship. Psalm 25. Take a moment to journey there. The Psalms are so rich, for so many of them speak of sin and grace, redemption and hope, lostness and foundness. In you, O Lord, my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies triumph over me. No one hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are my God and my Savior. Had Jesus yet come when these words were 
written. No. For you are my God and my Savior. My hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from old. Another way of saying that is from ancient times. Your love and your mercy predate the advent of sin. Your love and your mercy are part and parcel of who you are and who you have been and who you will be. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. That title, Mensch in Widerspruch, Man in Rebellion. A theological treatise on sin written by one of our mid-century famous theologians summarizes it well. Sin isn't simply an act of mistake. It's a state of rebellion. And when the psalmist hits on this, he hits on something very important. Lord, don't hold the stupidities of my youth against me. That's one side or my rebellion. We like to think of rebellion as a phase we go through. But I know some of you and your rebels with a cause. You are. I love that about you. We still, no matter whether we're children or teenagers or whatnot, have something that we rebel against whether we're even conscious of it or not. Some of our own choices and actions are governed by rebellion so old in ourselves, we've lost touch with with the, the origin of those behaviors in the first place. We've lost touch with the reasoning with which we took up certain perspectives or activities, but they're born in a spirit of rebellion. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. So God is this one whose mercy and love comes from ancient days, whose goodness is always, whose trust we may place ourselves in. In him there is no shame. So we have this wonderful psalm that that gives us a hint not only as to the state in which we find ourselves and the nature of it, but of the hope that there is in God even before the advent of Christ. Lamentations. Not every day we get to read something in Lamentations, is it? Follows Jeremiah, by the way, if you're wondering. Lamentations is a lament, literally, a kind of how did this happen, or to put it in the Jewish context, why me, Lord? Lamentations 5, in the midst of this lament, says something truly profound as well. Joy is gone from our hearts, our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. 
Because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. We don't have the vision we once had as a result of what we do or have done. We don't have the, the moral standing. We don't have the courage. We don't have the vigor that we had. Our sin has robbed us of that. And in this context, Israel, of course, has been overrun by, or Judah has been overrun by another. This is one of those captivity themes. But in this lament, there's something really, really poetic and powerful. The joy has gone from our hearts and our dancing has turned to mourning. There's that song, you know it, right? He has turned my mourning into dancing. You know? Have you heard that one? Oh, you need to get that and boogie to it. I'm here to, you know, we just gotta, gotta celebrate. Jesus takes our mourning and turns it into what? Dancing. Can you say that word? Say it with me. Dancing. Ooh, dangerous stuff. As Garrison Keillor so eloquently puts it, having grown up very conservative Lutheran, he says, you know, the elders of our church wouldn't let us dance because they were afraid that it would arouse our carnal natures. He said, little did they know that our carnal natures were up, dressed, and waiting for the bus. <laughs> All not dancing did was make us dangerously uncoordinated. I heard that comment and I said, I resemble that remark. And so does my church. We could have been raised conservative Minnesotan Lutherans for the lack of dancing in our, our midst. He has turned our mourning or sorrow into dancing. That's Jesus. That's what Jesus has done. He has come and liberated and freed. But we don't get to this liberation without an understanding of what he's going to take on. And that is that because of sin, joy was turned to mourning. That is the state in which we found ourselves and find ourselves in sin. Sin robs us of our joy. It takes us away from the dance that we are to have with life and our maker and turns us into people who cannot see, who cannot feel, and who cannot act. It devastates us. It destroys from within and it destroys from without. And then we get to 1 John. And we're so familiar with 1 John's conversations with us about love and sonship and daughtership and the goodness and grace of God. And it's marvelous writing. But in John 1, 8, starting actually in 5, he says this about the incarnated word of, of God, our incarnate word of life. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship 
with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin in the first place, we deceive ourselves and there's really no truth in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and therefore his word of truth is not in us. Now here it's small word, his word is not in us, that is to say the word that was spoken, this is all referent of course to John 1, but the capital W word is not in us either. For the presence of the righteous one reminds us of our unrighteousness. The presence of the Holy One reminds us of those ways in which we have fallen short. The presence of the One who is light casts that light on the dark places of our hearts and lives we would hide. And so we have a few texts out of many, many, many on the state of things in sin. And it's not pleasant and it's not happy, but I can give you this hope. While our joy has been turned to mourning, Jesus will turn it back to dancing. While our sins are as scarlet, he will make them white as snow. While we live in darkness, darkness cannot be where light shines. And with the light of the world in our hearts and lives, no darkness can remain there. So I don't bring to you a message without hope. I bring with me this morning a useful preposition concerning and a plea that in this season called Lent, that so much of the Christian world participates in, that we not necessarily focus on the trappings of that season and the markers of that season, but we capture the spirit of that season. Being mindful concerning the ways in which our choices our thoughts, our habits, our wills have been used against us to crush our own joy, to distance us from the God we love, to dim our vision, to dull our senses to make heavy our hearts, to rob us of the freedom that we were created with, that which now enslaves. Let's be mindful of those things as we look forward to the Emancipation Proclamation for all of humankind that comes in the grace of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, in this season, may we find ourselves mindful. Mindful concerning those ways in which 
we've drifted, those ways in which we've chosen, those ways in which we've thought and acted that take us away from the freedom you've declared. And to that end, I pray your blessing on this wonderful congregation. Amen.